Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HO101, we talked about the progressive movement that led to the prohibition of alcohol in the United States, as well as what life was like during prohibition for most citizens. But anytime something is both illegal and highly in demand, the result is always a thriving black market, and black markets don't exist within a vacuum. In this episode, we'll talk about how alcohol was made available and what damage was caused in the process. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. That's good. We've been talking about uh, prohibition. Yes. And kind of drinking our way through the uh, through the entire topic. It's it's a it's a good way to do it. It's thematically appropriate. I felt like it was a nice little touch. Yeah. And uh, what do we got in front of us here? Well, um, you did spoil this one for me a little bit, but I probably could have guessed uh-huh. that this is a gin and tonic. No. It's not a gin and tonic. It is a it's gin and something. It, it's a it's a it's a cousin of the gin and tonic this is a gin ricky all right then so we've got some gin which uh is usually what would be used now this is better gin obviously than you would have gotten from a speakeasy in the 1920s <laughs> along with some lime to cut the gin and uh, a whole bunch of sparkling water just to give you that refreshing pot excellent so cheers cheers very refreshing very refreshing similar to a gin and tonic doesn't have that that aftertaste bite from the the tonic water though that uh, that quinine. I I think I kind of prefer it. I haven't had it this way before, but um, you prefer tonic's overly sweet too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this is nice. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. So, anyways, now that we've <laughs> now that we've talked about which which alcohol we're drinking, <laughs> we 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 were talking about how just how how great everything was. Yeah, everything's super. Prohibition's the best, and um, in uh, some ways, it's, there's no downsides. It's even better than than regular regular america yeah. you know, everybody's having more fun those those pesky temperance people out of the picture yeah they kind of got what they wanted everyone that wants to drink is drinking consequence free yeah yeah it's, it's good times we've got jazz music now fantastic i i see no downsides yeah. i mean obviously we're being facetious here and obviously <laughs> we know that there's there's uh, significant downsides to to prohibition mainly all of this is rooted in the fact that this law is a moral one it's not about somebody hurting somebody else this isn't like a law against for example robbery where you are taking someone else's possessions that's a problem you shouldn't do that it's got a victim that's never really going to be campaigned against i don't think i mean that would be a bold platform if somebody did yeah i I mean you have to respect them just for 
just for going there. I'm not sure if I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 there, there's certain laws like that where it's kind of like, okay, well, this is for the protection of one party involved in some sort of transaction or event. Then you've got these other laws that are all about certain people having a certain outlook on life. And I mean, this is this is really simplistic, but it's it's about them wanting to make sure that everyone else conforms to that morality or that conception of how things should be on an issue that isn't necessarily as clear cut and doesn't necessarily have a direct victim as a as a direct consequence of that act. Right. See, the the thing about morality laws is that okay, so one of the one of the arguments for temperance, for example, was that alcohol led to an increased rate of domestic abuse. Okay, I see where that argument is coming from. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, there are laws in place against domestic abuse. And the fact that alcohol was involved or not involved doesn't change the legality of that domestic abuse. I understand that we're trying to protect people before that other crime happens. And that's, that's fair. But it doesn't make domestic abuse any more illegal. And it doesn't prevent it from happening. And... Yeah, we, we've we've kind of got a we've got a bit of an issue there where there are going to be a lot of people who disagree and they're going to continue doing it no matter whether no matter what the the laws state. Yeah, and there are lots of laws like this in our society. I mean, goodness, when was the last time you were on the highway and went the speed limit and everyone around you went exactly the speed limit and nobody went one point over? <laughs> um, that's not a thing that happens. It never happens. And technically, every single one of us that ever does that is breaking the law. That's that's illegal. That's we're we're we're, we're criminals. But you know what? You're going going to touch over. You're not going to get pulled over. You're yeah. going to go a lot over. Yeah, you'll get pulled over, sure. But you know, it's just kind of it's kind of a thing that happens. It's a thing that we've kind of all agreed is just how it's going to be. No one's getting hurt. Yeah, if they suddenly decided to enforce to the letter the mm -hmm. speed limit. It, it, it's not gonna. It's not gonna. It's not gonna go very well. There might be riots. There I'm could not be, sure. and I'm not even exaggerating. About no, I. That. I. Yeah. That's. Yeah. It, it would be. It would be insanity. And 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 there's plenty of little things where they're just not really carefully, you know, or strictly prosecuted, or they're not. People are kind of okay with a little bit of ambiguity there, and when that happens, I think what that's really an indication of is the fact that. It's not necessarily about the protection of somebody from the actions of someone else uh, as much as it is, you know, us trying to uh, make a statement about what kind of society that we want to live in. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That isn't an indictment of that practice in law. There's absolutely a place for that. But if someone is determined to go a little over the speed limit, they're probably going to go a little over the speed limit. If someone wants to smoke some marijuana, they'll get their hands on some marijuana. Yeah. It's not It's not really going to be that hard. Not really. Yeah. And you know what? If you're if you're the right gender and you got the right color of skin and you got the right amount in your bank account, probably nothing's going to come of it if you're not doing anything else illegal. And what really bothers me about some of these laws specifically is exactly that, the way that they're enforced right. rather than the actual creation of this law because remember when we talked about the temperance movement itself there was this whole underscoring of protecting these so-called vulnerable classes of people from the evils of the drink and it's not about the entire society 
it's about this this preconception that these people need some sort of protection and is often disproportionately enforced against those people right. again for their protection yeah supposedly <laughs> and and meanwhile there's all these people who think well this isn't really for me i can get away with it if i continue doing it and so all of a sudden it's like well how do you how do you enforce that if you don't have the vast majority of society supporting the enforcement of a law how do you support that like you gotta you gotta have some laws on the books like this isn't the purge we got <laughs> we we gotta we gotta have a functioning society here yeah but you know what? If you get robbed, you call the cops. If you see someone going five over, you don't. That's not a crime you report. Yeah. And geez, if I called the police every time I smelled some pot, no. Oh. Yeah. I'd just be speed dial all the time. Mm-hmm. Walking down the street on speakerphone. <laughs> and there's one. And, and there. there's one. And there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, exaggerate slightly, but still. The thing about smuggling things, though, is that usually that's where the most controls are going to lie. And that's what individual citizens are probably least equipped to do in this whole illegal framework. It's dangerous. There's literally a checkpoint that you have to go through. The risk is quite a bit higher than just going to a secret location you're aware of and having a good time. Yeah, because, I mean, sure, there's a flood of goods from Mexico. There's a flood of goods from Canada. And absolutely, some of that is smuggled by individuals. But you're talking about a society who's drinking a lot of alcohol. And you need to smuggle a lot of it to keep up your own stores, let alone make it worth your while in any way. So this is kind of where entrepreneurs take over. <laughs> entrepreneurs. Yeah, they see a business opportunity. Yeah. They're willing to take some risks for... Uh, the promise of some potential some potential long-term gains. It's That's fair. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of routes in. There really, really are. There's a lot of ways to get things into the United States, especially in the 1920s. People start outfitting cars with, you know, hidden panels and things like that to stow lots and lots of Canadian club whiskey. <laughs> Which, by the way, is considered very high quality at this point in time. I mean, partially due to the lack of other options yeah um, i'd say compared to the stuff made in the bathtub yes it's got to be pretty good right well exactly and and i mean that's that's the thing canadian brewers who are who are making this stuff or distillers i should say know what they're doing are able to do it openly with proper equipment uh they got a lot of things working for them in the system <laughs> but yeah you've, you've got people who decide that they're gonna go they're gonna go big time with this and you start seeing bootleggers the rum runners bootlegger by the way comes from or they or they think that it comes from this idea of soldiers who used to smuggle flasks in the in the leg of their high riding boots oh that's uh that's where that term i mean did not know that who knows these these colloquialisms sometimes are, are a little bit lost to time but that seems to be the the consensus of a an origin there and one of the first places they focus because it's a little bit easier is on bringing stuff up from the Caribbean into Florida. Because Florida's lousy with places that you can just pull up a, a boat. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's quite the, quite the coastline. And none of these Caribbean nations care. <laughs> oh, you want to buy some rum? Sure. Nope, no problem. Yeah. Churchill told them to go stuff it, so <laughs> they're safe. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, realistically, like, what, what can the United States do about this? They're not the 
world superpower that we think of, of of today. That's not really going to come into place until, you know, it's it's starting up a little bit. That's post World War II stuff. Right. There's one guy, Captain William S. McCoy, Captain Bill McCoy, who starts doing this like big time. He buys a full schooner. It's it's a it's an old fishing schooner. He swaps out all the bins below decks where you could carry fish for spots that you can rack barrels of rum basically strips the thing bare just all for extra space to to carry rum installs a uh hidden mounted machine gun and decides he's in business now and the coast guard cracks down really hard on florida initially like when it was first put in place in uh, in early 1920 and you know mccoy managed to not get caught up in all of that at that point in time but he also realized that his it was going to be really difficult to move the quantity of rum that he needed to make a, make a buck and avoid the Coast Guard, who was watching fairly carefully. So he came up with a, a business strategy. He would pick up all the rum that he wanted, very openly, not bother with hiding it at all, sail back towards the United States, and then stop three miles off the coast, where it was still international waters. Right. And there would be these small-time guys who would sail out in their little fishing boats, basically. They'd be like these little fast maneuverable boats. They'd sail out to where he was anchored. This is called the Rum Row. They've got all these rows of boats waiting for him. And he gets there and he sells the rum to these guys. And all they have to do is run it from the line past the Coast Guard to the coast. And they're much they smaller, they it. don't have as much, they don't, probably don't look as suspect. Exactly. Huh. Turn a little bit of profit. Meanwhile, McCoy's sold an entire schooner full of rum to these guys. And like, with way, way less risk to him. Virtually none. Yeah. I mean, the Coast Guard hated him. They knew exactly who he was. Well, yeah, they but they can't do anything about it. Not at all. He's not breaking any laws. Yeah. He isn't producing alcohol. He's moving it, but not in America. He's not transporting it in America, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's fine. And he's, not, well, he is selling it, but again, not in American territory. <laughs> and these little boats would just sail up to any random little inlet where they had, you know, they had uh, agreed beforehand to have somebody waiting. And they'd, they'd have somebody that they could sell it to. They'd have little contacts and they'd put a markup on it and and they'd be happy. And they would... They would make quite a bit of money off of it, but they were also taking a lot of risk. And McCoy just dealt in volume. He eventually expanded his operation to sailing things from the maritime provinces down to Maine. Uh, same, same strategy. Yeah. Still setting up the rum road, the rum line. He he expanded into uh, other types of alcohol as well, not just Caribbean rum, because rum's actually really cheap. Like, it's really cheap. And Caribbean rum, like, really, really, really cheap. Mm. And people didn't want to pay a lot of money for it, because it's Caribbean rum. It's it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, so we expanded into other brands, other types of alcohol. And the thing that was distinct about him, as opposed to some of these other guys who would do it, is that... Other people were pretty bad about making brand recognition work very hard for them. Mm. Oh, some generic uh, sparkling wine from France? No, no, no. That's champagne. That's that's real, like Moet Chandon. That's that's top top shelf stuff, yeah. and you're gonna have to pay for it. They would also water it down. They would bring extra bottles, water it down, sell it as though it was the real thing. People got very angry about that. 
McCoy made a policy of, of never watering anything down and never selling anything under the wrong brand name. And this is one of the possible origins of the phrase, the real McCoy. Uh-huh. Probably not. I've seen like eight other ones. Yeah, still. Good little story. Uh, <laughs> he, he, so he became known as the, the honest game in town. Well, exactly. Yeah. You could trust something that came from him because it was what he said it was. Right. And I mean, a game like alcohol smuggling uh, relies so much on your reputation because this is like anything else. I mean, he's, he's a dealer, right? And you're trusting your dealer not to cut your stuff is what's happening here. <laughs> Anyways, I, like his, his method worked so well that a lot of other smugglers picked up on it and started using it. And you actually had a flip to a system where there were more uh, McCoys on the water than there were tiny fishing boats ready to run stuff in. Hmm. And the rum line got just kind of crazy where you had all these people waiting offshore waiting to offload all their products, these little boats. These little boats can kind of take the pick of it. So they put up big banners, like advertising their prices, making sure that they were, you know, like, we're the cheapest ones you should buy from us. Uh, they would throw these huge parties on deck. They would bring out prostitutes to attract rum runners. Jeez. It was just, it was international waters, what can I say? Yeah. And these guys would all go out there armed, but they weren't armed against the Coast Guard. They were armed against each other because... They'd try hijacking the, the the big smugglers that waited outside the line. They were fighting each other for cargoes that they bought. They would wait till, you know, one of their own bought booze from somebody and then hijack their ship and take the free booze home and, and sell it for 100% market. I was going to ask, what was the idea with the machine gun? Was it the Coast Guard or was it? I think originally it was the Coast Guard. I think very quickly it was uh, it was for his own protection from others uh, other smugglers. Right. I mean, and the Coast Guard didn't have the resources to deal with this. What they did to try and combat it is that Congress passed a law in 1924 extending the limits of international waters from uh, three miles out to 12 miles. The idea being to limit the number of like really small, really fast ships that could actually make it out that far. 12 miles off the coast is a significant distance. Mm -hmm. That's going to cut out just from a safety standpoint, the number or the types of boats that can actually make it out there. Right. is also going to increase the risk for the people making that short run from their own line and hopefully dissuade people from using that to make a quick buck. Obviously, it didn't work. Really, what it ended up meaning was that there were these custom-made rum-running vessels that started popping up. They were actually manu- uh, manufactured in Canada for the most part. but They are really low-profile, usually painted gray or black for night runs, really powerful engines on them, built for like maximum uh, cargo capacity with you know, still good speed and maneuverability. They're smuggling vessels. Yep. Yep. These same vessels are still, are now the ones that are running across the the Great Lakes because, you know, why not? Those, you don't even have to worry about somebody like McCoy being off the coast waiting for you. You just go to Canada. It's already a pretty reasonable distance. Just go to travel. Canada, buy it legally from someone Canadian, take it across. Yeah. No problems. And slowly, individual bootlegging kind of became less and less lucrative. I mean, other than the the sort of base level, um, the the local guys, your 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 corner dealers, yeah, most of it started being a, a little bit bigger just to make it profitable enough to to work. You had these rum runners in, or, or sorry, these bootleggers in uh, in the Appalachian regions that were basically distributing from places that were making larger quantities of moonshine. And they would do basically the exact same thing, but with cars. They would take their cars, they would soup them up, give them like really powerful engines, improve their steering. They would make modifications like 
they would put a button in that would switch on and off your the connection between the brakes and your brake lights. And the reason for this is that the guys running these routes, it's through the Appalachian Mountains where everything's like really twisty turny, lots of up and down the you know, and the cops who would be chasing them would generally be federal. They wouldn't be familiar with the area. And these guys knew these places like the back of their hands. So if you don't have brake lights, then it's a lot harder to chase them in the dark? No. So you're following somebody. Yeah. Just driving, regular street driving, and you see the brake lights come on. You brake. You brake. If they don't have their brake lights coming on, then the cops behind them don't know when to brake. That's kind of mean. And they overshoot on the turns. Mm -hmm. Damn. What a great idea, though. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's, it's, it's ingenious. Good, it's good thinking. It's ingenious. And this huge culture of, of car modification and, and bootlegging comes up in that, that kind of southeastern uh, region, the whole Appalachian region, really, that actually ends up con uh, continuing after Prohibition because they decide that illegal moonshine is, uh, is cheaper than, than legal alcohol in a lot of cases. And these guys keep running it for ages. And... This new sport comes up in Florida. It's called stock car racing. And a lot of these guys, when they're not running, will go down to Florida and they'll race their same cars that they use for running. And you know what this turns into, Colin? NASCAR. NASCAR. <laughs> Seriously? We can thank Prohibition for NASCAR racing. Wow. Yeah. Now, is that just because all the cars they were using for running were using pretty much the same specs? No, but because more, more because they they were souping them up in in similar manners, and because stock car racing in that day less meant I were using the exact same car, and more meant you're taking a you're taking a car and modifying it with readily available parts. They were never stock, <laughs> not really. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of the and I mean NASCAR proper didn't start until I believe the fifties and was much more formalized by then. But a lot of the guys who raced in those early just pre-nascar days were were bootleggers right and that's how they got so good at driving so fast on <laughs> twisty courses amazing yeah in the united states up until this time there had been organized crime there's always organized crime organized crime is everywhere that's that's a that's a constant of human history however up until prohibition a lot of what they worked with was you know, things like illegal gambling or prostitution or, you know, just protection schemes, things like that. I'm not going to say those things are bad, but compared to where we're going with organized crime in the United States, it almost seems quaint in certain ways. Mm. <laughs> but then alcohol becomes illegal and they go, okay, well, we've got the resources. We've got the guys who are willing to you know, take a fall if they have to and not rat anybody out. We've got the infrastructure necessary to make this happen. We've got the contact necessary to make this happen. This is a great opportunity for us. And you've got all these like first wave American gangs start getting into bootlegging as a significant source of income. And I mean, why wouldn't they, right? They've got nothing. To, they, they don't care about the legality of, of perfect liquor. for them. If somebody else is making money off of it, that's just money that they didn't make that they could have. They're organized crime. So, yeah, this 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 whole structure of, you know, being able to take those losses and not be ruined. I mean, if you're smuggling as an individual and you get busted, that's it. Game over. If you've got a crew and one of your guys gets busted, 
that sucks. Take but care of his wife talk. until he gets out. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. And I mean, it's really important to remember at this point in time that we, we talked about last time, a lot of the stuff that we think of in terms of drug trafficking weren't really illegal yet. You don't have them smuggling heroin because you get that at the drugstore. Huh. So so it's all it's all vice crimes for the most part, other than the other than the protection schemes. But for the most part, they're just giving people what they want. Now, it does get ugly within the organized crime world. And, you know, I would I would also classify I would also classify protection schemes as being pretty or or relatively violent. They have the potential to be at least. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really the bootlegging is just an extension of their other vice offerings, if you want to call it that. It made a lot of sense mm-hmm. by the sounds of it for them to get into that game. It was a high growth sector. <laughs> and I mean, they knew how to get a, a get around the police and they knew which police were corrupt and they knew, like, you know what I mean? And they were armed and they were, they, they had all these things that, at their disposal to make them very well suited towards, towards bootlegging. I think the story of organized crime in this era is most easily to- told through Al Capone, partially because he's the most famous of the the gangsters of this era, but also because it kind of follows a course that most organized crime does at this point in time. You know, by, by talking about him, we're kind of talking about the story of organized crime and, and prohibition. So I think that works really well. Al Capone, born 1899, he... Uh, came up in in New York in some small organized crime outfits there. Ended up moving to Chicago and starting his own little outfit. And people really liked him. He was a he was a nice guy. He made a point of being very community facing. He did a lot of positive things for the community with all the ridiculous amounts of money that he was making. Yeah. But like a lot of donations to charities. A lot of you know like just. He presented himself as a very, like, like a Robin Hood figure in right. a lot of senses. And people, people knew he wasn't maybe the best guy, but he was doing so much good for the community that, hey, it's Al Capone. He's, he's an all right guy. <laughs> um, I mean, he ended up running his gang in Chicago, like the, the Southside Chicago gang, by the time he was 26. He was very, very young by the time he got to the top. Part of that is like, that it was a fairly new gang. Part of it was some some politics within the organization. Some of it was violence from without the organization. And, you know, quickly, completely running things. And the the best place he saw to make money was smuggling booze out of Canada. He had guys in cars going constantly through Windsor. He had boats coming across the Great Lakes into Chicago he knew which cops to pay off. He knew which border guards to extort. He just kind of made it happen. His networks in Canada were extensive. There was so much liquor flowing from Canada into the United States through this one man's network. It's amazing. Uh, well, the risk for the people on the Canadian side was pretty much zero, right? And they don't they don't really care, do they? Not really. It's it's no the the risk was pretty much zero. That's that's correct. It's not illegal for them to sell to an American. Yeah. He's buying it in Canada. If the Americans want to arrest him, go for it. Feel free to arrest him. That's that's your business, not ours. Yeah. So he keeps bringing all this stuff in from Canada. He sells to like networks of speakeasies, not to individuals. He's looking for as much distribution as he can get. And it works out quite well for him. 
he gets pretty deep into local politics, uh, not himself, but in terms of uh, getting close with politicians to the point that he basically bought the 1927 Chicago mayoral election. He supported a, uh, a mayor named William Hale Thompson, contributed a quarter of a million dollars to him mm. in the 20s. This guy, in in return, was running on a platform of ignoring prohibition, basically. (laughs) He was basically campaigning, saying, I'm not going to enforce prohibition rules. That's a platform a mayor could have? That seems like a dangerous thing to run on. Yeah, it does, but Al Capone's giving him a quarter of a million dollars to say it. Yeah. And you know what? The people love it. Yeah, that that would play well. And so they vote for him. And Thompson is thrilled because Al Capone got him elected. And all he has to do is keep doing what he's already been doing, which is not busting up Al Capone's operation. (laughs) And it's kind of perfect for Capone because what he's got is tacit approval from the local government. He's got countrywide prohibition, which he kind of still wants in place because that's that's what's making him Yeah, he doesn't want prohibition to be gone because otherwise the, you know, um, proper legitimate alcohol... Uh, producers will just spring back up again. Correct. He wants to be the sole source of alcohol in this country. That would be the end game for him. Did he own any of the speakeasies? Or did he just stick with distribution? I'm not sure. I mean, Al Capone himself never owned a thing in his life. Right. That uh, would be part of the point. Well, I mean, famously, he he got busted on tax fraud. Uh, tax evasion. Right. Because on paper, he never made a dime. And so they they... He was never charged for smuggling. He was never charged for extortion. He was never charged for murder, even though he was involved in a a number of famous hits, including the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. That was the one where a a number of guys dressed up as cops uh, showed up at the hideout of a rival gang. This gang had been stealing alcohol from uh, Capone's network. They busted in there as though they were putting them under arrest as legitimate police officers, took them outside, lined them up against a brick wall, and uh, mowed seven people down in cold blood with Tommy guns. One of the one of the victims was named Frank Gusenberg. They asked him, who did this? Who shot you? And his last words were, no one shot me. He had been shot 14 times. Organized crime's weird sometimes. Yeah, a little weird. So that was that was taking out this this rival leader Bugs Moran who who was killed in this massacre. But the thing that was crazy about that one was that it got like the the pictures got published in the newspaper, and they were they're they're grisly like they they're would be, yeah. they're they're horrendous and it really turned public sentiment against Capone who right. up until then had been seen as this kind of yeah, you know he's a rogue but he's our rogue kind of thing yeah. and it's like no he he ordered this he made this happen mind you. Like I was like I was saying, there's nothing to tie back to him, right? There's no, there's no evidence that he did anything there, but everyone knew it was him. Yeah, and so that's why eventually the FBI went after him for for tax evasion because they could prove that he had made income. Uh, it was all of his illegal income from all of his things that he had done, and he kept ledgers of it. And they managed to get their hands on the on the on the ledgers and and take him down that way. The guy ended up dying in jail. He, yeah, the way he went wasn't great. He was already at his at his trial in the uh, in the thirties. He had he had uh, syphilis, which rots your brain real bad. It's it's a 
it's a bad way to go. Mm. Even at the trial already, he was showing signs of of deterioration, and he, yeah, died died a, a pretty sad death in jail. But but yeah, it, it was really you know, 1929 was a, was a turn point year for the United States. I mean, that's when the depression begins, and in a lot of ways, that's the year that the sheen on prohibition wore off. Even before the the market crash in October, the carefree nature of the of the speakeasy lifestyle kind of starts wearing off when you realize what actually supports it. And that's about the time that they start realizing that it is this organized crime syndicate or all of these syndicates that are that are actually propping all of this stuff up. That that cocktail that you were drinking last night, somebody may have died to get that to you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, and uh, that would be a pretty harsh realization. Might bring the fun down a notch. Just a touch. Yeah. I mean, we refer to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre the way we do for, for a reason. It, it, it stood out that much in, in the public consciousness. And that's just, it's just one gang in one city. This kind of thing was happening everywhere. And I mean, gang activity was more concentrated in sort of the Northeast, mostly because uh, at that point in time, the population was much higher in that in that area the main source of alcohol would be smuggling rather than uh through homebrew especially out, out west where you actually have access to vineyards or you know in the in the south and southeast the uh the home stills were the most common right so anywhere that they're smuggling the crime is going to be the highest all of that kind of coming to light makes prohibition it 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 shows the the downsides of prohibition quite a bit more because what everybody knows but isn't saying out loud but now has to be faced to some extent is that you know no one stopped drinking but now the way that they're getting that alcohol is worse and i don't think anyone would necessarily argue that buying it from organized crime is in any way better than a, a system with legal oversight in terms of production quality in terms of taxation in terms of distribution all of that stuff Mm -hmm. if people are going to be doing something anyways sometimes it's better to make sure that it's done safely and and then the market crashed and that's the end of the roaring 20s really i mean the 20s were nearly over anyways it's not often that the that the end of an era and the end of a decade line up so neatly but hey it was it was october 1929 that the that the market went down and yeah. uh and with it went that that ride and high hedonistic nature of the of the roaring 20s and all of a sudden people were worried about where they'd be getting their next meal not their next drink and on that down note i think that's probably a good place to take a bit of a break cool. and uh, when we come back we're going to talk about the end of the prohibition of alcohol in the united states sounds good We're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. Man, it's really killed the buzz of Prohibition, huh? Yeah, we were uh, we were riding high for a bit there. And then uh, reality, the jazz age. reality set in a little bit. Flappers everywhere. Yeah. And we're just having a good time. Interestingly named cocktails <laughs> abounded. <laughs> People were making alcohol from car parts. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they got to see... Uh, behind behind the scenes, how it was made. Mm-hmm. I love that show. Yeah, it's a good show. 
This, this, this if, this, is... if this was how one of the episodes went, though, I don't think I could support the product. Nope. <laughs> yeah, and and that combined with the economic just disaster that was the the twenty nine stock stock market crash. Yeah, it, it's all of a sudden a, a whole new day in terms of just the the social reality of the United States at this point in time. Because I, I keep mentioning this, but it's really important. Nobody really like. I shouldn't say nobody because, of course, there were always supporters of of the temperance movement. That's how it got started in the first place. That's how it got political traction. That's how it got made into a constitutional amendment. Of course, there was support. But the public as a whole never seemed to think the prohibition applied to themselves. That makes it kind of unenforceable. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we're dealing with a crisis that there's, there's a legitimate concern as to whether as to what the United States is going to look like on the other side of this. I mean, the, the, the stock market crash was really difficult to, like, it's really difficult to put yourself in the place of someone living through that era just because of how much it affected and what some of the outside concerns were. A lot of times it's, it's framed in this sort of kind of sanitary context of, you know, now now the U.S. economy isn't doing so well and next comes the Great Depression and there's the Dust Bowl and all of that. And it's really hard for a while and FDR comes along and New Deal and then World War II and everything is fine again. Like there's there's also some really big global social stuff going on, specifically the rise of communism in, at this point, the Soviet Union. And there's a real concern, like an a actual legitimate concern in the United States that the crash was bad enough that it could spell the end of capitalism in the united states it's certainly how the crash was built in the soviet union yeah and there are a lot of people sympathetic to the communist cause that are going well this is it this is how this is how we find out which one ends because there are global implications to the stock market crash uh we felt it up here in canada as well europe was just barely getting its like anything back together after World War One, and yeah. it was hit a little bit hard, uh, some places more than others. But because of some relatively isolationist tendencies, the Soviet Union wrote it out okay. And a lot of people are pointing to it going, well, here's the failure of the experiment of, of capitalism. Apparently communism works better. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, like, and it's, it's, it's really worrisome for, yeah. for someone in the United States because this is the thing you've been saying is going to happen to the communists all this time and look who came out ahead. Right. But on top of that, it's just day-to-day survival, right? There's a lot of people... Like, the, the unemployment rate was very high. You have issues with food production because of the Dust Bowl, which just made everything worse, but, you know, really made it difficult to scrape by in these years. And Prohibition just kind of became the last thing anything any anyone was worried about. There is so many other things to worry about. In fact, one of the things that they were looking at in terms of prohibition was, hang on, remember the 14th Amendment? The one that replaced liquor taxes with income tax? Not a lot of people are making a lot of money right now. And when that liquor tax was in place, it accounted for about 14% of all federal, state, and municipal taxes. Damn. We currently have a $3 billion a year black market happening that is promoting violence and crime throughout the United States. 
none of that money is taxed uh, and people are still just not stopping. They're still drinking. Yeah. They're just doing it in a much more dangerous and much less uh, responsible manner. I want that $3 billion put towards reviving the economy. That's a lot of money, especially in 1929. Yeah. And now what's the argument for temperance? I mean, even bad for society, alcohol, you know, Mm. well, it's, it's bad (laughs) for society when it's illegal as well is what we found out. Yeah. Why? Yeah. They don't have a leg to stand on anymore. Not really. And I I mean, even these temperance movements, even guys like Wheeler start backpedaling a little bit because what, like, what, what do you say? People are, people are starving. We need that money. Yeah. And what's worse, somebody buying some, some legal whiskey or, or, people literally starving to death eh, yeah i know I, I know which one i pick the temperance movement also has this bit of an issue like a little bit a little bit of a pr issue uh where the, the ku klux klan was like like a real big supporter of them it's just not a good sign when that happens yeah to anything or anyone <clears throat> trump <clears throat> sorry what was i i had a cough i'll i'll just edit out that cough no problem don't worry about it okay cool. that's what editing's for yeah yeah, you you just you just don't want that PR, and they tried distancing themselves for from it, and the clan hung on. They loved the idea. They they absolutely agreed that the uh, the alcohol should be kept away from certain elements of society. Believed it was best for everyone. Threatened to personally act as as vigilantes in the in the war against alcohol. Good, good. That'll help things. Oh, yeah. No, it looked real good for them. Uh, I bet Wheeler just was thrilled about that endorsement. Whew. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's this huge, it's this huge industry. It's large. It's uncontrollable. It's dangerous. It's violent. It's untaxable as it exists now. And then, in October 1930, a man named George Cassidy is arrested for smuggling. And he goes, okay. He says, you know what? This is like the third or fourth time I've been arrested. I'm done with this life. I'm not smuggling anymore. And instead, he goes to the Washington Post. And he says, I've got a story for you. I'm not just any bootlegger. I run to Congress. I'm the main point of contact for Congress, for all of Congress. And they run a six-part front-page feature on George Cassidy, where... Other than naming names, George Cassidy tells his entire story of his life as a bootlegger. He tells how he does it. He tells, like, detail by detail, every single piece of of what it takes to run liquor. He's referred to as the man in the green hat because of the, like, he always wears his green hat. And this this story is is incredibly well-received. Everybody is reading it. And... He says in this story that by his estimation, four in five congressmen and senators have bought liquor from him personally and either drink at work at the Capitol or at home. And I mean, it's not really news that drinking is still happening in in, in government. I mean, every president since Prohibition has been put in place has entered office and brought their stores with them. And put them in the White House basement. Sure. But it's the stuff that's bought before Prohibition. It's fine, right? You know, so they're powerful politicians and no one's going to arrest them. And 
on the heels of the Great Depression, where everyone's suffering. And to some extent, they ascribe part of what the nation is going through to prohibition. It's seen as kind of this, you know, one aspect of this this decay that's led to the, the Great Depression. Probably not fairly, but I mean, after the, mar- the market crashes like that, there's very little trust in government. Yeah, oh, dashed completely. Understandably so. Yeah. For this scandal to come up on the heels of that. I By mean, the way, 80% of Congress is uh, completely corrupt. Well, I can I, I can tell you that the, the Republican Party, not looking so good after that. They had controlled the, you know, every every president since Prohibition had been Republican, majority of senators and, and congressmen, Republicans at this point. Bit of a shakeup in the next election. Bit of a change up. Kind of kind of leaned a little bit Democrat. And this is actually the, the point in time where you see a bit of a pivot from the, the Democratic Party, uh, from being like this party that kind of represents the interests of the, the Old South to a more... They originally wanted to call themselves socialists. Uh, did not use that word for, mm-hmm. for reasons. For PR reasons. So went with liberal, even though, you know, traditionally liberal values in the political science context aren't really exactly socialist values necessarily, but it sounds a lot better. It sounds a lot better. And this is when FDR is going to be elected is, is in 1933, a couple of years after, because like I said, they're ready for a shakeup. And I mean, Roosevelt comes to power, not just on the, you know, on the heels of, of political scandal, but also with the promise of the, the New Deal, right? And, and that's his, uh, his system of getting people back to work after the, after the Depression, basically, which was actually really clever, all things considered, the way he went about kind of alleviating some of those troubles. It was, uh, I mean, have the government pay people to work, get the, get the economy restarted. If they don't have a job, give them a job building roads, build the dams, build the, you know, build the infrastructure of the country. You're making the country better as well as giving people jobs and money. It's it's simple, it's elegant, uh, and it was relatively effective. But while he's looking for things to fix, you know, his gaze does turn squarely on prohibition and that three billion dollars a year and the organized crime issues that we're having and few people who do go to jail, but the people who are sitting in jail for a crime that most people wouldn't really consider that much of a crime and like all of these issues that swirl around prohibition. Mainly the money. I, I won't lie to you, but that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. You just went through a massive market crash. Of course, that's a major issue. Money's. That's one of those things where they've got so many good reasons to do it that the money's enough. The other, the other reasons are enough to get everybody on board. It's like the money on its own is a good enough reason to make it happen. No questions asked. No one's going to. Well. You shouldn't have any problems getting it pushed through. The other reasons are all the things that silence even the people who might dissent. It it basically makes it a foregone conclusion. So the first big change that Roosevelt makes is what's called the Cullen-Harrison Act. And it's, a, it's an amendment to the Volstead Act. And so for the first time in 12 years, they make a, a, an amendment to what is actually considered a, prohib- a prohibited beverage under this act. And as we talked about in the first section, beer was disproportionately targeted for 
quite a number of reasons. And the beer industry had been suffering quite a bit because, you know, people can figure out how to make wine. People can figure out how to make cider. People can figure out how to make grain alcohols. Beer's trickier. Mm. It's a little bit harder to brew beer on your own. Mm -hmm. Certainly doable, but they weren't going for like a double hop IPA here. Yeah. They were looking to get torn up on a Friday night. It's just not it's just not priority one. No, I guess if you're gonna put the effort in, go for the stuff with the higher alcohol content that's easier to make. Yeah, pretty much. Beer's beer's on the losing end of that. Yeah. So they amend it to say that beer is allowed up to three point two percent. And that's finally enough to get the breweries actually legally working again. They had been selling this thing called near beer for a while, which was basically non alcoholic beer. Mm. Had a tiny bit of alcohol in it, but under uh, the legal limit. Right. Who's buying that? Like, why? Grocery stores still sell it, and I still don't know who buys it. I'm not sure. I, I honestly Somebody. don't know. Somebody does. So, well, they've got to. Teens? Maybe teens? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just feel like it would have to taste really good to... To drink one that didn't have any alcohol content. But nobody appreciates the taste of beer when they first have it. No, you don't get started on that stuff. It's just, it's just if you drank the dealcoholized beer as your first like beer experience, you'd be probably be like, nope. Yeah, I could see that. So where, where's the market? I don't get it. In a lot of ways, it comes out of this near beer tradition, but I don't know why it's still going. Yeah. Like even for cooking purposes, like don't don't you need the I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm speculating wildly at this point. This is well outside of my uh, my experience or my knowledge. So I I don't know, but yeah. it is still there. Anyways. Oh, um quick question from from something earlier. Were there any repercussions for the man in the green hat? Either either Oh, he from... went to jail. Okay. Oh, he went to jail. I was yeah. gonna. I was gonna say, was he either arrested or did he? Was he the target of vengeance from the gangs? Uh, no, not from the gangs. But he he didn't like he didn't name names, and he like he had his own smuggling operation. It wasn't so much that he was, you know, working for Capone or something like that. He had a, a mid sized smuggling operation that that he uh, his his entire market was Congress. Right. So kind of a kind of a specialist, but. You don't need to target someone like Capone to take down the organized crime racket. You need to expose the the how and the why and the hypocrisy of it. And he was the perfect person to do that. Right. No, but he 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 absolutely went to jail. He basically told that story in full recognition that by admitting all of this stuff through the newspaper that he was putting a target on his own back. Yeah. Yeah, he was admitting to breaking uh, quite a lot of laws. This was his farewell from the from the life of, of smuggling alcohol. He uh, he decided that he was going to go out with a bit of a bang, uh, that he was going to take down some folks with him, possibly the entire system, and that he was likely going to go to jail, but at least he could do it with clear conscience. <laughs> interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Very interesting guy. It doesn't feel like the most rational decision to make, does it? It doesn't. I mean, if he was just that fed up, I guess. I guess that's where you where you get to, right? I, I suppose I suppose if that's the market that you're running to, it might be a little bit harder to sleep at night. 
not not so much for your own guilt but for the hypocrisy of it all yeah if you're selling to a speakeasy and that speakeasy is selling to just normal folks who are looking to have a good time you know you're you are a necessary service in a less than ideal climate if you're selling to congress it's kind of like okay okay come on (laughs) exactly and i could see how that would chew at you for a while yeah but anyways enough about cassidy yeah 100 went to jail would get released when prohibition was over basically but yeah he knew what he was doing and he decided to to go for it anyway which i guess makes him kind of an activist i'm not sure like it's hard to say it's it's easy to look at those actions and say that they're noble but he may have just truly been fed up i feel like he was less of a believer in a cause and more like flipping the double bird as he went down yeah (laughs) pretty much screw you guys yeah i'm out i'm taking my ball and i'm going home yep Uh, anyways, I, I mean, they started pushing through the repeal of the, of, of the, of the 18th amendment pretty quickly after the election of, of Roosevelt. It was, it was pretty like the writing was on the wall. Like they needed the money. They got it completely passed through the house ratified by all of the, or the, the two thirds of states that were necessary for a constitutional amendment and, uh, enacted all by December 5th, 1933. And just like January 16th, 1920, overnight, just flipped. And then you were allowed to drink again. Kind of. What this amendment did, this is the 21st Amendment, by the way. What it did was give individual jurisdictions the ability to prohibit purchase, but not transportation or importation. And there were some complicated rules about production. Um which is how we get that kind of odd network of dry counties that still exists to this day uh, in the U.S. There are certain counties that are uh, 100% dry. You have lots of them that there's no prohibition on alcohol whatsoever. And then there's a good chunk that have partial prohibition. Usually that's like a no Sunday sale kind of thing, mm. which is is still in place uh, wild, uh, widely throughout the U.S. Mm-hmm. But the key is they can't they can't prohibit importation or transport which means that even if you live in a dry county you can drive over to the next county over that does sell it pick up a six-pack and come home and no one can stop you from doing that which is an odd compromise but a lot of places seemed okay with that and that was part of the kind of the uh the negotiation that happened over repealing prohibition right right because i I don't think they can backpedal a hundred percent well, I mean, it depends. How do you characterize somebody's right to consume alcohol? I wasn't even coming at it from that perspective. It's more like they put this in place, what, 13 years before that? Yep. So that's not long enough ago for mm-hmm. them to look back on it and just say, hey, guys, we just made a terrible decision. I feel like they got to they gotta t- kind of take the things that had them make that decision in the first place hmm. and and have some of them ride along a little bit but i mean it was so sporadic it's 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 decided on a on a county by county level not even a state by state level necessarily so what percentage roughly of counties you know stayed dry about a third if you're looking at mixed levels of dry 
Oh, wow. That's more than I expected. I, I mean, that's that's counting like no Sunday sales and everything else is fine. Right. And did that did that ease up more? I mean, in the years following? Or is that still about the proportion today? It's It's eased up slightly, but only slightly and only kind of in little bits here and there. <laughs> I mean, they did kind of say we made a mistake 13 years ago. That's kind of exactly what they said by making an amendment that specifically repeals a previous amendment. I guess it's a new government. Yeah. They could be pretty confident in in saying that. Well, and I mean, there's a reason they call this the noble experiment, right? They gave it a shot and they decided it failed. Right. What you have to weigh when you're looking at a morality law is does the prohibition of this behavior or or um, product or what have you, does the prohibition of that thing bring more benefit to society and to individuals than allowing it to stay legal? And in this case, the answer is no. It's worse to have it illegal. It turns out that doesn't work for us. Right. And plenty of, st- uh, of, of jurisdictions went full backpedal on that. They are uh, 100% wet counties or jurisdictions. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know, the drinking never left. You know, I keep I keep kind of going back to this, but it wasn't really enforced. Like, not, not, uh, not systemically. Not by people. Yeah. By government organizations, absolutely. On a corporate level, yes. At a border control level, sure. Absolutely, you'd have the odd raid. But, you know, you didn't have neighbors reporting neighbors for having a bottle of wine with dinner because it felt as ridiculous to them as it does to us saying that right now. It's just life. That's how it was. That's how things were. Everyone did it. Yeah. It wasn't a big deal. And sure, they would talk about the benefits of temperance about other people. And that's where that sort of insidious classism and racism seeps its way in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But not for themselves. They didn't consider themselves the problem there. And that's really where that experiment fails. It's, uh, as we said when we started out, it's, it's predicated on these completely flawed progressive notions of the relationship between someone's socioeconomic status or ethnicity and their free will, their propensity towards crime or other undesirable social behaviors, all, all of that stuff. It's completely flawed. If they had been right about those things, maybe it would have been more of a success as, a, as, a, as an experiment, but they weren't and it wasn't. Right. And I think the recognition of just how much bad was brought into place because it was banned was very, very apparent to everyone from the corruption within the government and hypocrisy within the government to the level of organized crime that had popped up around smuggling these products to even just everyone probably knew somebody somewhere that had been thrown in jail because they had a couple of bottles of wine in a, you know, brewing in a, in a cupboard and somebody managed to figure it out. Everyone knew somebody who got busted in a speakeasy raid. It's just nobody thought that they should be in jail. Nobody thought that they sh- they deserved what they got there. Right. And as much as the 18th Amendment 
you kind of look at it and go like, yeah, this is based on really flawed logic. The 21st Amendment to me feels like the way the government should ideally work in that it was able to look at it and go, you know what, we messed this one up. Let's right the wrongs that we inadvertently caused by right. putting this in place in the, in the first place. Yeah. And you're right. It's a really hard thing for a government to do to say, no, no, this one didn't work. Sorry, guys, we done goofed. Yep. Thought it would work, but it didn't. Normally, it takes generations before that's a, a possibility. Yeah, 13 years is, is a relatively short amount of time to, to try it and then acknowledge its failure. And to be fair, it was a, it was a crazy 13 years. And it was a very different society at the end of those 13 years than it was at the beginning. The 20s were transformative, and it's hard to stress just how much they were transformative. In a lot of ways, it was kind of the first taste the United States had of like true, full-on economic prosperity in a nationwide sense, and not just kind of focused in a relatively small and corrupt oligarchy. People have made lots of money, and they stayed in their own circles. They were a better class of person. The 20s brought around a booming economy that actually rose all, you know, uh, rose all boats or whatever the, the saying is. And that, that made a big difference. And then having that snatched away from them at the end of the 20s, also a big difference. And it puts a really pragmatic spin on economic policy and social policy. You know what? If $3 billion a year of business is being done... Maybe we should uh, see if we can get a piece of that. Get in on that. Especially when, you know, the employment, uh, the unemployment rate is spiking well into the double digits. Let's see if we can put the brakes on that a little bit. So is it safe to assume that uh, a lot of American alcohol producers kind of sprang up around that time? There's a, there, there's a number of them that you would see kind of coming out of this era. That's where you get the tradition, really, of, of like Tennessee whiskey and, and the, the whole rye or, or bourbon industry. Is, Guess what, guys? This tastes okay. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's guys who knew what they were doing with it still. And, and I mean, you're getting your... I, I mean, I believe, I believe most of the bigger companies were around pre-prohibition, but they didn't really stop brewing, even though they were kind of supposed to. You know, maybe not at the factory, but these guys kept working on what they were working on. Yeah, that's fair. And you know, you get your you get your Jim Beam and your Jack Daniels and your Wild Turkey and all of that. Absolutely, that comes straight out of the moonshine industry. That's why it's all corn mash. That's what you know. That's what moonshine was usually made out of. So, you know, you also get the the American uh, wine industry coming out of the the massive grape production industry that comes out of the uh the prohibition era i mean you know there were there were guys moving from from europe to california at this point in time bringing vintners know-how just so they could sell the grapes and knowing that they could take those grapes and you know send them back to europe but maybe someday yeah it's it, it was it was just very lucrative yeah so it was really easy to turn into booze grape bricks <laughs> yeah, great bricks. <laughs> Just the best. You know, you had the you had the beer industries kind of slowly coming back, but really what you see is is a number of breweries that started after this era because you know, there there was a hole in that market. The the beer brewing industry had not had not fared well under prohibition. 
Well, in any brewery that wasn't large enough to kind of stay active or, you know, maybe some makers who weren't so focused on, on keeping their skills up to date, I imagine we lost a lot of, of good uh, breweries from before Prohibition who just chose not to restart when things kind of resumed. Sure. Yeah, it would be it would be incredibly difficult to do. And you'd see a lot of that that knowledge and experience and talent go outside of the country. Yeah. As we talked about, uh, the American rum industry never really recovered at all. Yeah, rum comes from the Caribbean. It's just how it is. Hmm. It's not financially viable to make rum in the United States anymore. I mean, it's it's done, but... <laughs> you, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. No, nothing nothing uh, well-regarded or of high quality is necessarily um, American-based, at, le- at least not when it comes to like a, a prestige uh, level. I'm sure there are breweries that are making great rums, but or distilleries, I should say. Man, I mix those up all the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, anything that you would recognize the name of, probably Caribbean. Yeah. So... The way to look back on stuff like this in a lot of cases is who benefited and more importantly, who suffered? Because I think that's always a really valuable question to ask when changes of this magnitude come in on a social level. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really important to look at what effects it had, not, on, not just on society as a whole, but on certain segments. And as we've alluded to a number of times, by far... The, the working class and uh, minorities were disproportionately targeted for arrest. And the other group of people that suffered quite a bit were alcoholics. Because any semblance of a support network that they would have had before Prohibition completely vanished. They had nowhere legal to go for help managing this. They were the most desperate segment to get, uh, a desperate segment of society to get their hands on alcohol and therefore the most likely to pursue high-risk behaviors and like the uh the the methyl the anything with methyl alcohol in it yeah this is where the the stereotype of drinking sterno comes from is these guys who that's where they knew how to get alcohol that's their their cheapest fastest most effective way of feeding their addiction it's terrible absolutely horrible and I mean, after Prohibition is removed, you start seeing the new wave of, of support networks for stuff like this to come up. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in 1935. Say what you will about the effective, effectiveness of that program, which, you know, there are increasingly alternatives to. But it was something. It was anything. And that's not something that that would have existed during the uh, the prohibition times. Well, of course not, because yeah. I mean, this is a this is an era of. I mean, we're we're barely at a point in our society now where we're willing to actually normalize treatment of of addiction for people who are addicted to illegal substances. That's a, that's a major struggle, and that's a that's a very current struggle, and it's it it sucks because it very much forces someone to suffer disproportionately for their particular demons um, because it happens to involve something that's illegal. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's different schools of thought on all of that, but this experiment in particular shows that it's not terribly humane to just kind of leave someone out to dry if, they're, uh, if what they're struggling with happens to be illegal. When you can provide some, any style of support for someone going through 
any type of addiction, it's going to be better for them. Even if that treatment, its end goal is to get that person 100% clean. It doesn't matter. Provide them that service and, and, and you're going to have a overall better society. I, I don't think that's, a, that's an overstatement to, to put it in those terms. Yeah, I'd agree. So prohibition. Nobody stopped drinking. Everybody kept, everybody kept right at it. They just found cooler and trendier places to do it or alternatively grosser and more horrifying ways to do it. Yeah. And very few people actually stopped. And most of the people that stopped were people who were already against drinking anyways. Well, even the cool and trendy ways supported uh, a horrible and gruesome backdrop of organized crime. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. G- generally, generally when people want things, if they can't get it legally, they'll get it illegally. It's just kind of how it goes. Less of them might get it. It's true. Yeah. It's harder to get. It's usually more dangerous to get. But they'll they'll find ways. They've tried measuring what impact this had on alcohol consumption in the United States. And the answer is we're not entirely sure. Pretty sure it went down. Not well, sure based by how on the much. numbers um you stated in the in the in the previous show, they have gone down since then. Oh, certainly, but they've they've gone down. Uh, throughout the world, even in places that have never even flirted with the idea of of prohibition. Right. You know, it's talking about intoxication is a is a is a tricky subject because there is so much moral stigma placed on it, and in a lot of cases, legal ramifications. Because of that, it's often not terribly well understood because people have a lot of incentive to lie about it. Mm. A lot of incentive. And so it's hard to study. I, I've seen a lot of conflicting numbers about prohibition. It looks like within a few years of reinstatement of the sale of alcohol, numbers were back up to about 60 to 70% of pre-prohibition levels. It definitely went down. The question is by how much and how much of that is actually an effective prohibition and you know, and how, not just a general trend to, to lower usage. Sure. Or the fact that when... Prohibition was repealed. It was the middle of the Depression, and people didn't have a terrible amount of money to spend on things like alcohol. A lot of factors. Um, Were those people uh, just still homebrewing, even though it was now legal? So you can't really go by sales numbers. Yeah. One thing that they try to use is documentation of cirrhosis of the liver, which is a disease that's tied directly to alcohol consumption, and watching whether rates of cirrhosis... Have gone up or down. Yeah. And it seems that the trend is downward, which is good. But again, it's, it's a very indirect way of measuring something like that. But there's so many other factors as to why something like alcohol consumption would have changed. How many people were drinking alcohol because certain things that are available now recreationally weren't available or weren't used rec- recreationally? So, you know, how many, you know, in, 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 the, in pick your poison terms... How many people were using alcohol because that was the one that was available? Mm. How many people were sort of self-medicating issues that we are now better equipped to deal with? Things like, uh, for example, chronic pain or depression. There's, there's so many factors that go into why someone drinks that yeah, this, this stuff becomes nearly impossible. And and all it, if, you, if you start digging into it, all you're going to find is a massive argument over various causes and effects, and it's a complete mess. By the sounds of it, it's easier to 
measure prohibition's effect on many other not alcohol specific not specifically alcohol related things yeah like the rise of um organized crime Mm -hmm. the switch in political power from republican to democrat in that era Mm -hmm. you know not specifically booze related things but it definitely had a massive and measurable impact sure absolutely and i mean a lot of the things that they thought it was going to impact positively never came about right uh you remember that that blue monday uh, hypothesis of six billion dollars of productivity a year being lost right that never materialized it turns out turns out that wasn't true <laughs> turns out that that wasn't a thing <laughs> over the prohibition era you had uh, an increase that the average person spent on alcohol it basically doubled the amount that that the average person spent on alcohol right and it was going all like it was all going to the gangs it was all going to organize crime. And so what like what what did you what did you achieve? You didn't reduce drinking rates that much. Uh you certainly didn't uh increase revenue uh to the government for social programs. You didn't manage to uh replace that revenue with income tax, at least not well enough to prevent a massive financial crisis. <laughs> uh you you increased the crime rate pretty significantly. Mhm. And there's really no indication that there was any change in any of this other stuff that they said it was going to have an impact on uh, domestic abuse or disease from alcoholism or, you know, like it, that, that stuff all existed. People still did crimes. People did more crimes. They just did different crimes. But a lot of the same crimes still, too, also. It was an experiment, though, right? The noblest of experiments. <laughs> no, I, I mean... I, as much as I as much as I tend to take a, a a negative stance towards it, you know, a lot of that is benefit of hindsight. Good chunk of it is current social norms. So you know, it's not the worst thing to give stuff like this a shot when there's ample evidence for it. The fact that the evidence was flawed, absolutely a problem and contributed to its downfall. But if there's enough supporting evidence and enough supporting public will towards something like this. Sure, that's that's what governments are supposed to do is to reflect the, you know, representative governments at least, is to reflect the will of the people and to accurately reflect and properly support the society that it is charged with um, the responsibility of, of protecting. Yep. Oh, I, and it, it sounds like their their largest, truly their, their largest failure, and this shows with, with how they implemented it and how they enforced it, they had too much confidence that just because it was illegal, people wouldn't do it. Yeah, because absolutely true. With, with the lack of enforcement, right? It's it's as if they were pretty confident that just by saying the words and and closing down the saloons, that would be enough. Yeah, and the funny thing about alcohol is that it's not that hard to make. It's really easy for that grassroots movement to pop up. It. I understand the confidence when you don't consider the homebrew market. Yeah. If but you how close down the distilleries and the brewery, that? if you close down the br- distilleries and the breweries, you shut down the saloons, you close the borders, where are people supposed to get their alcohol? And it turns out they really want it and they'll work hard for it. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, maybe they couldn't have predicted that. But uh... it does seem naive. I, I will agree with you there. But but again, I, I can't help but be reminded of the current conversation around marijuana. 
sure, close the borders, don't allow anyone to commercially produce it, fine, but you know, now you got people growing it, growing it in their basements, right? Yeah. Mm. And it's going to be less safe, less control, and they're not getting any money from it. Exactly. It's it's a very interesting parallel, and it's it's very timely in a lot of ways. But yeah, that's that's the progressive era for you, kind of in a net, in a nutshell, though. Uh, well intentioned actions based in disturbingly fr- flawed premises and sort of not always the best things coming from them. See eugenics, Jim Crow laws, prohibition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, this is legal again. We enjoyed a few drinks ourselves while we did this. I think that pretty much brings me to the end of my story, at least. You got any any follow-up, any comments, any questions? No, I think that all sums it up really well. It's funny because the, the image I had of it, I think, coming into the show uh, was a little bit more the, the fun side of it because I feel like that's something that survives in pop culture is because of like, the speakeasies and the speakeasy thing that they try and and, and replicate today. Yeah. The flappers, but there's, the jazz. Yeah, there's always this romanticization of of breaking laws that don't that don't really matter, right? That don't really matter. You know, the the you know, it's cool to drink booze underage, or it's cool to you know. There, there's these ones that it's kind of like it's almost celebrated rather than than looked down upon. Even in pop culture, there's there's much bigger crimes that if they're done for the right reasons, you know, you look at you look at Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of good examples. Like even Ofe- even Ocean's Eleven. Any action movie where they, oh sure, Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, that's a great example. They, the heist. They're so cool doing it though. And they're playing, you know, that nice bass line in the back. I love that song. It's so good. It's very very good. <laughs> Brad Pitt's always eating stuff. Yeah. They all look very classy. Yeah. Yep. Nope. They're criminals, and they should probably have gone to jail for what they did. But it's cool. That's cool. And yeah, that's the that's the underside of, of prohibition is no, it was it was illegal and anything that's that's illegal and cool is probably supported by something equally illegal, but far less palatable. Yeah. And I mean, even you know, you look at some some actual very positive social changes that came out of it, including the relaxation of the prohibition against women to partake in any any vice activities. It's it's kind of ironic that it took prohibition to make it okay for women to drink and smoke yeah um Um, a little bit more social mobility in the way that we socialize and and drink yeah that's actually i don't know we the 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 american culture was sort of united in its rebelliousness and that's that's kind of interesting that those are the those are the things that came out of it that are good yeah but on the whole it's just regardless of the good things and the bad things that came out of it, it it really does feel, of course, you know, hindsight. It's great. Man, they should have, they should have seen it coming just how gloriously that wouldn't work out because prohibition never happened. Really? No, people didn't stop drinking. And it like it, it, you, you wonder, and I'm sure they, they would wonder as well what it would have been like if they had successfully enforced, if the American people had bought into it. But how do you do it? You well, know what they, I mean. They, they proved that you can't. They spent they spent generations beforehand with the WCTU and things like that, having having mothers you know sign pledges to make sure that their children were raised to never drink or smoke, and 
you know, white ribbon campaigns and things like that. Those kids all grew up to be drinkers too. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I think as, as, as flippant as Churchill's response to this was, and as kind of classically acerbic as it was, yeah. he wasn't entirely wrong. The idea of it being an affront to the whole history of humanity. You know, we've, we've always had a relationship with intoxicants of some sort. Probably always will. You know, that relationship changes and, and you know, it's, it's incredibly complicated in, in, in the ways that it, rela- it relates to society at large. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be there. And I don't know that passing a law that the majority of the population doesn't support and then enforcing it poorly is the best way to pull that out of our collective experience. Probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. The noble experiment didn't work out. And looking back, it's easy to criticize it, pick out the reasons why it could never work, deem it doomed to failure from the start. But that viewpoint is one of the benefits of having performed such an experiment in the first place. However flawed the premise, there was a national will to attempt a new way of life and that takes immense courage. Attempts like these are only true failures if we learn nothing from them. Next time on HI101, we're going to be talking about Vikings. That episode will be up on December 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.